Well, please, congregation, turn your Bibles with me in the first place this morning to the gospel according to Mark and to the account of our Lord's crucifixion that he's recorded for us in Mark 15. Mark chapter 15, we'll read verses 21 through 39 as background to what the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2. Mark 15, again at verse 21, this is God's holy word. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what it should take. And it was a third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also... The chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Let's turn also to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2, we'll begin reading at verse 11. We'll give our careful attention this morning to what the Apostle Paul says in verse 20. Galatians 2 at verse 11, this also is God's holy word. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. And now our text. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, Dr. Brian Chappell shares the story of an English Puritan Reformed pastor who in the year of 1692 is grieving. The pastor grieves because he does not know anymore how to uphold the very truth which had stood at the very heart of the Protestant Reformation. Yes, he of course affirms the the Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura by scripture alone, such a, a noble doctrine on paper. And the word of God in all its fullness is, is what he proclaims Sunday after Sunday. But here's the problem. The more that he proclaims the, the standards of God's word, the more his people begin to wilt and sink into spiritual despair. There are some members in the congregation who are, who are much newer to the faith. And so as they hear the standards of God's word proclaimed Sunday after Sunday, they cannot help but look at the more seasoned saints around them and, and say in their hearts, how, how will we ever catch up? At the same time, there are those who have lived long in the faith. And as they hear the same standards proclaimed, they begin to wonder, well, how can we ever measure up? We, we believe what the Bible says, we hear what it says, but, but how can we ever possibly live up to it? And some members from each of these two groups are in great despair, those who feel they'll never catch up as well as those who fear they will never be able to measure up. The pastor describes the dire situation in his work, the mystery of sanctification, by knowing that there are some in his congregation who are in such despair over their besetting sins that they have begun to mutilate their own bodies in order to keep themselves from committing again those sins which haunt them. And not only that, but there are some who are beginning to contemplate taking their own lives in order to to get free from their sense of a guilty conscience. And so in the midst of all this spiritual despair, Pastor Walter Marshall came to pray these words. May God bless my discovery of the powerful means of holiness so far as to save some from killing themselves. And may God enlarge the hearts of many by it to run with great cheerfulness, joy, and thanksgiving in the ways of his commandments. 
May God bless my discovery of the powerful means of holiness so far as to save some from killing themselves. An awful, dreadful prayer. But an immensely hopeful prayer as well. For Walter Marshall, the words of the Apostle Paul found in Galatians 2 verse 20 were his salvation for ministry. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What Walter Marshall came to discover was that the answer to the problem that he and his people were facing was a, a gospel understanding that our life, and not just life eternal, but that our life here and now is lived not on the basis of, of our own work, but rather on the basis of the perfect work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that our life before the face of God is not lived in light of of who we've been or the things we've done, but that our life here and now is, is rather lived in virtue of our union and ongoing communion with the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And we just read the account from Mark's gospel a few moments ago, and that's an account that many of us have, have come to know quite well, how, how over 2,000 years ago our Savior took the cross upon his soul, soul, shoulders and, and marched to the top of Mount Calvary where he was crucified, utterly naked before the world, having only a, a crown of thorns upon his head. And there at the top of the hill, as he hangs upon the cross, the soldiers mock him, and, and the Jews deride him, and the, and the robbers revile him. And the Father forsakes him as he endures the full weight of the curse upon his own shoulders as he cries out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the pinnacle of his suffering. It was the fulfillment of those prophetic words. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And as the Apostle Paul reflects on that awesome event, as he contemplates that great turning point in the history of the world, that death of all deaths. What does Paul say? Paul says that he was right there with him. And he teaches us that we who have likewise believed on his name were right there with him. Such that we can say this morning, I have been crucified with Christ. As we meditate on these words together this morning, notice in the first place the immediate context in, where, in which verse 20 comes to us. Here, in his letter to the church of Galatia, one pastor writes out, what the Apostle Paul is trying to do is trying to, to lay a solid foundation on which to live and build the Christian life. He's, he's pouring out the cement of God's love so that we might live freely before him. Boys and girls, we know that the foundation of the house is the most important part of the house. If the foundation is bad, the rest of the house will start to cave in. The, the doors won't be able to open or close. The walls will start to crack and, and cave in on themselves. And the house will prove itself to be unsafe and unstable. And that's Paul's pastoral concern here in Galatians chapter 2. Paul desires that we should 
build our lives on the solid foundation of what Christ has done and not on the, the unstable foundation of what we have done. This is what Paul is getting at in verses 15 to 19. Coming on the, on the heels of having opposed Peter to his face for his hypocrisy, Paul is now spelling out the further implications of what was so wrong with Peter's conduct. You see, by returning to the works of the law, that is, by separating himself from the Gentile believers, Peter and the circumcision party were trying to, to rebuild what Christ had torn down in his atoning death on the cross. When Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when that, that veil in the temple was, was torn in two from top to bottom, all the sanctions and, and stipulations of the Old Testament civil and ceremonial laws had finally come to an end. The Holy of Holies was opened up for the priesthood of all believers. And so that dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile was finally torn down. But this is the wall which the circumcision party is seeking to rebuild, that, that wall of the Old Testament law, the very thing under which they once stood condemned. And by withdrawing from the Gentiles, Peter, likely out of a, out of a fear of man, was, was giving in to this legalistic impulse. To quote William Hendrickson, not that Peter was at heart an enemy of the gospel of grace, but there at Antioch he suffered a temporary lapse. By withdrawing from eating with the Gentiles, the unintended effect of what Peter was saying was that to be saved more is needed than trust in Christ. But adherence to the ceremonial law is also necessary. And it's in response to this legalistic lapse that Paul says in verses 15 and following, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild... What I tore down, I proved myself to be a transgressor. In other words, to return to the law for our standing before God after having come to know faith in Christ is an even greater sin than trying to, to justify ourselves before the law before we had faith. For through the law, says Paul in Romans 3, comes knowledge of sin. It cannot save. The law in that way was like a harsh schoolmaster pinpointing sin and wrongdoing. And apart from Christ, the law was, was held up as, as a mirror before God's people where they only came to see their, their sin and their need for a Savior, but it could not provide the Savior that they needed. Yes, it, it directed them to the path that leads to blessing. It was good and, and perfect in that way. But we in our sin only ever veer far from that pathway. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, says the prophet. We have all turned aside. Each one of us goes our, our own way. And so the apostle Paul will go on to say in chapter 3, verse 10, that all who then rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. 
And by all this, what Paul is simply trying to say is that if we build off what Christ came to to break down, if we rebuild a a life before God on the basis of who we are or the things we've done, then then we've lost sight. We've forgotten what, what the cross of Christ was all about. And we return to a life of bondage. And so Paul says in verse 19, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. What Paul has come to understand is that as good as as the law may be, it is totally incapable of empowering us to to truly live for the Lord. And so to live unto the law is, is to die unto God, but to die to the law is to live to God. And so to quote one writer, in order to truly live for God, Paul has replaced his attachment to the law with an attachment to Christ. He will not reject the grace of God. That grace is decisively revealed in the death of Christ. And to seek righteousness by the law is actually to deny the effect of that death. This, of course, was at the very heart of the Protestant Reformation, wasn't it? Before the the Protestant Reformation, what was it that made Good Friday so good? There was nothing that made it so good if, if salvation was by faith plus works. And so prior to his conversion, Martin Luther wrote, Although I have lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that God was pleased by my satisfaction, and I did not love, indeed I hated, the righteous God who punishes sinners. Prior to his conversion, you see, Luther was constantly bruised by his guilty conscience. He was a prisoner of his own mind. It is until he finally came to discover what it was about Good Friday that made Good Friday so good. And this is what the Apostle Paul has likewise come to discover in verse 20, that he need not be regarded anymore as a transgressor of the law. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This, you see, congregation, is at the very heart of the gospel. That Christian death precedes Christian living. That if we have finally died to the law, when we have finally died to the law, we are brought to the heart of the gospel, which is our union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. As we heard this past Sunday afternoon, this is precisely what we confess in Lord's Day 23. That even though our consciences accuse us of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, never having kept any of them. And even though our conscience has accused us of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of our own, God grants and credits to us the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. As Christ hung upon the cross, he entered into the courtroom of God's divine justice. 
and he endured the penalty for all our sin on his own shoulders, the utter forsakenness and abandonment of God. God cursed him. God damned him. As the sky darkened, it was as though he, he received on our behalf the, the inversion of that great ironic blessing, as though God was, was saying from the heavens, the Lord curse you and abandon you. The Lord turn his face against you and be merciless with you. The Lord place his frown upon you and wage war against you. Again, does the Apostle Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? God made him who knew no sin to be sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And as Paul says in Galatians 3.13, it's not just that Christ received the curse for us, but Christ became the curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As Christ hung upon the cross, he entered into the courtroom of God's divine justice. And bearing shame and scoffing rude in our place, condemned he stood. When our Lord cried out from the cross, it is finished. And when he, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he finally breathed his last, he was immediately transferred out of the courtroom and was brought back into the living room where God said, Well done, good and faithful servant. And according to the Apostle Paul, when Christ was transferred out of the courtroom, we were too. And the heart of God, although we were not yet born in virtue of his electing love from before the foundation of the world, when we placed our trust in his only begotten son, like that penitent thief on the cross, we too were ushered out of the courtroom and into the living room. It took place over 2,000 years ago, and yet Paul says that I can say, I was right there with him. And so I need not fear the just judgment of God ever again. For I have been crucified with Christ. And you, congregation, have been crucified with Christ. My sin, oh, the bliss of the glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. You must not be afraid of how provocative the Apostle Paul is being here. He's trying to, to show the nature of our union with Christ, our identity in Christ, that we can say, I, I have been crucified with him. Nails have been driven into my hands. A, a crown of thorns has been placed on my head. Blood has, has pooled at my feet. I have, have been crucified. And you have been crucified. My old man hangs on the cross. He is dead. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't bear my sins on my own shoulders anymore. No longer are, are we defined by who we've been or by the things we have done. 
And my status does not change. Your status does not change. Because you have been crucified with Christ, the faithful one, the righteous one, God does not love you more when you do better. And the converse is equally true. God does not love you less when you do worse. Your status does not change. You need not feel as though you must clamor for the Father's affection. It is already yours. And although the Father may discipline you in his fatherly goodness, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Because that's already been taken care of at the cross of our Lord Jesus. And this is what the cross is all about. This is what makes Good Friday so good. We can sing how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch's treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Yes, says Paul, because I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Boys and girls, in the sight of God, our lives are hidden with Christ, says Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. And if our lives are, are hidden with Christ and God, when God sees us, who does he see? If our lives are hidden with Christ, then when God sees us, he sees Christ. And so Paul can say, for me to live is Christ. And he can say in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 that we are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. And so everything that is true of him, at least in terms of his humanity, Paul says is now equally true of us. Christ wanders in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, being relentlessly tempted by the devil, and he resists him with the word of God. And according to Galatians 2 verse 20, the righteousness of that resolve is mine, and it is yours. And so it is with every act of kindness, every act of compassion, and every ounce of faithfulness and patience and humility that, that Christ has has been placed in our spiritual bank accounts. And we live from that power. For we have been crucified with Christ and is no longer we who live. And so the death of Christ, you see, becomes the death of our pride before God on the one hand, as well as the death of our despair before God on the other. And so Paul goes on to say, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who, gave, who loved me and gave himself for me. The Apostle John puts it this way, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. The atoning death of Christ, you see, not only accomplished before God our justification, but also our sanctification and our transformation, our glorification. Lord's days 15 and 16, our catechism speak to, to the comfort that we have in the death of Christ. And those two 
Lord's Day is we take comfort in knowing that Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race so that he might deliver us from eternal condemnation. And then we confess that his death on the cross assures us, it convinces us that he shouldered the curse for us since death by the cross was cursed by God. But then Lord's Day 16 asks the question, what further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? And there we confess the answer, by his power, our old man is crucified. And our old man is put to death and buried with him so that the evil desires of our flesh may no longer rule us, but that instead we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to him. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This congregation is what the life of faith looks like. We live for him who loves us. Boys and girls, we see at the cross that Christ loved us there. He gave himself for us, but Christ didn't just love us then, Christ loves us still. As he continues to, to give of himself to us, as he offers up those priestly prayers, living in constant intercession for us. As he opens the door that was opened wide open, that veil was torn in two, so that we have access into heavenly places, as we'll hear on Sunday morning. This is Paul's confidence and assurance in salvation. By faith, Paul lives for him who loves him. And this is our confidence too. The apostle Paul is Christ's beloved. This is who Paul is. And this is who you are. And so this congregation is where you need to find your identity this morning. You are not who Satan says you are. And you're not who you may think you are. You're not a flunk. You're not a failure. But as you come to Christ, the living stone, rejected by men, says Peter, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. And in the sight of God, Peter says, you are a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a special people of God's own possession. Once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. And once you had received no mercy, but now you have received grace and, and mercy in abundance. It's so easy for us, isn't it, to place our identity elsewhere, to define ourselves by, by who we've been, by the things that we have done. But the cross of Jesus is an enduring testament to the reality that you are not the sum of your failures and unmet expectations. But you are sons and daughters of the Father. And so to quote Robert Murray McShane, for every one look at yourself, you must take ten looks at the cross of Christ. And when Satan tempts you to despair, upward you can look to see Christ there who has made an end of all your sins. This is the confidence in which we now live. This is the confidence in which we've gathered here today before the presence of the Holy One. And I pray that in two days' time, it will be in this confidence that you take the, the bread and the wine 
in your hand, that you will come to the table in the confidence of who you really are. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in the confidence that God is, is every bit as pleased with you this morning as he is pleased with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what makes Good Friday so good. That our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. And so as the apostle will go on to say in chapter 6, 14, we too confess to the world, far be it from us to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. For therein lies our hope and our confidence before the just God of the universe. And so if any of you are here this morning feeling as though you'll never catch up, or as though you'll never measure up, the Apostle Paul would bid us to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and to find in Him the assurance of our peace with God. For God grants every believer to say, I have been crucified with Him. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you and we stand all again at the death of deaths, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that you bid us to say that we have been crucified with him such that when you see us, you see him and all his perfection and all his faithfulness and patience and humility you credit all his work to us. Father, we thank you that because of Christ, we are no longer at enmity with you, but that we are at one with you. That our sins have been atoned for. That you have proven yourself to be both just and the justifier by placing our sins on the shoulders of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you grant us the grace to live in light of this reality. To live in the confidence of faith in him. We are not defined by who we've been in the past or by the things we've done in the past. But that we are entirely defined and identified by our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ in virtue of our union with him and our ongoing communion with him. Grant us grace to meditate on these things this day and all the days of our life. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.